Hello and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security episode 46, the episode that I didn't think was going to happen, but it did, and here it is. How you doing, Jao? As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you, you, Jay, for another one. Um, Yeah, it looks like we managed to fit this into the schedule, and yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, I I have all things open coming up, and I'm um, prepared already, so I figured we should do a podcast. And today... It's about monitoring. We're going to touch on some logging and some things too. Um, at first, I was just I was going to mainly talk about what to monitor, which we will talk about that. But we should go over some of the monitoring solutions as well, because I realize we haven't actually gone over that yet. I thought we did, but I couldn't find an episode title to prove it. So when I refer to monitoring, you know, we have monitoring solutions out there. There's actually I, I can't count. Uh, Nagios is a popular, tried and true, old school system. We have Zabbix, um, and I know there's a number of others. Yeah, many, many others. NetData, we have Prometheus, we have Datadog, we have lots and lots of uh, both open source and closed source solutions, but uh, all of those will probably run on Linux anyway. Um, it basically depends on what amount of uh, resources you can throw at it, what amount of storage, what amount of processing power you want to, to use. Some will be agentless, others will require you to deploy an agent on the systems that you want to monitor. Um, as a quick pro tip just to start this, you might want to be more interested in the ones that have auto-discovery of hosts and networks, so that it cuts down on the amount of work that you have to do manually. Nagios is very nice and very complete and you can configure it any way you want, but you have to add the host yourself, it doesn't do auto-discovery. So yeah, others will. Um, For example, I like Prometheus and Grafana for the dashboards because it gives you all those nice looking um, graphs and stats and whatever you want to to show with it. Um, And you can also complete it with data from other sources like say Active Directory if that's what you want to pull data on users and all of that. Um, You can make it as complete or as as basic as you want. All of those solutions are pretty much configurable to no end, basically. Lots of plugins, lots of settings, lots of knobs and little (laughs) handles to tweak and prop as you wish. Yeah, and you know, in this, this is kind of one of those topics that I feel like there's only so much that we could do in a podcast because if you're watching the video version, that's great. We could show some things if we were going to show how to set up one of these uh, tools. Uh, We wouldn't have time in one podcast anyway, but for the majority of our audience are going to be listening. So, so just hearing us talk about how to do it is, is not probably going to work while someone's driving to work and listening to us or however they listen to the podcast. So, um, I'm not going to compare and contrast a lot of these. I think you did a great job actually, because I feel like all of that is absolutely correct. Um, now to be fair, um, I did get Nagios set up with auto discovery. Um, it was not easy. I'm not even going to get into how I did it. It was a fun project. I really enjoyed it. I'm not being sarcastic. It was great, but uh, it probably would have been better uh, to your point if I used something else for that purpose. But Nagios is what I use. It's like I mentioned, it's old school. It looks like a, the interface literally looks like a GeoCities website from 1997. And I'm not kidding. Am I wrong? <laughs> exactly. that. That's probably the best analogy for it. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned that you managed to, to do it with auto-discovery. The, the last time I configured Nagios, I couldn't get auto-discovery to work at all. 
I had to pull lists of servers and lists of systems to, to add to it. Um, but uh, regardless, there are actually a couple of interesting points to, to, to note here. Um, first, we're not going to obviously explain how to set this up in a podcast because it's not viable. But there are ways to try this that are low effort and don't require too much configuration. Most of these solutions have Docker um, Docker files that you can just run and have an instance of it pop up. Um, and that takes minimal effort. It's just a matter of finding the Docker package and starting it. Um, so yeah, that's one way that you can try this, uh, these utilities. And another thing that's interesting here has to do with the level of detail that you can get out of them. Some will be more focused into system monitoring, others will give you access to service level monitoring. It's two different aspects, but they are very important depending on what you want to, to actually monitor. Say you want to monitor a full stack application running on the cloud, you're probably more interested in knowing if any of the parts of that cloud of the database, if, the, if Kubernetes, if a web server is down or something like that, rather than system level. Um, metrics. But if you're looking at your in-house systems on your own data center, your own infrastructure, you're probably interested in knowing stuff like even the CPU temperature on a given server. So it depends a lot on what you're trying to, to achieve with the monitoring tool. Yeah, and with in the case of Nagios, there's all kinds of plugins. They even have a website dedicated to that. So I actually found, for example, a script to, like you like you said, you know, monitor the, the CPU temp. I figured why not monitor that? And I have a version of that for x86 and Raspberry Pi. So, if, and it actually happens more often with the Raspberry Pis, considering they're in this room, which actually does get quite hot. Um, I kind of feel like it's it's a good segue into what to monitor because I feel like that's the bigger question. You could follow a tutorial. Maybe I'll do one, possibly, on one of these and how to set it up. I, I know um, Tom Lawrence over on Lawrence Systems YouTube channel. He has, um, I'm pretty sure, at least a video about setting up a monitoring system, if nothing else. But once you have it, there's some things you should monitor. Now, one thing I want to mention is that we can't give you a list of everything to monitor. We're going to give you our tips, but um, I feel like a monitoring system matures over time. So as you go, you might find something that you felt like you should be monitoring by now. And it, it's how it goes. You um, find something happens, and if it is a situation where something doesn't report, which is a situation you'd never want to experience. But if that does happen, then you find out why you didn't get a, an alert. Was there not a check for that kind of thing? Or was it in, you know, configured incorrectly? Hopefully, you're, you know, everyone's testing these kinds of things, but mistakes happen, right? So we want to be mindful of that. And the other thing I'll mention as a default practice or minimum practice, we still got to find our phrase on that one, don't we? <laughs> um, it's a good idea to have a watcher to watch Nagios, you know, or whatever it is that you have uh, set up. Because if you don't want to be in a situation where you're thinking, man, our, our servers are so awesome that they haven't paged in two weeks, just to find out that they couldn't page <laughs> because the link to the email server was down, or um, maybe the instance itself went down and nothing's being monitored, and then, you know, there's actual problems. So you should have something outside of your monitoring system to monitor that the monitoring system is working. And it might sound redundant because it is. It absolutely is. But you you want redundancy. Uh, I feel like IT is one of the fields where redundancy is a good thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we actually strive to get redundancy everywhere. Um, but yeah, um, do the cross checks so that Nagios is monitoring the monitor and then the monitor itself is monitoring Nagios. So you always know if some, one of the other goes down. Um, and what you were saying is absolutely true. Uh, be prepared to when something goes wrong after you set up your monitoring solution and are very happy about it, that you'll be missing the metric that you just needed to solve that issue that cropped up. Um, this isn't a static solution. This is something that evolves over time. So as you find the need for new metrics, nothing stops you from adding those over time. You don't have to configure everything from the get-go. You don't need 500 different metrics or data points going into your monitoring solution right on day one. You can add this over time. So if, say, you have a security incident and you wanted information about, say, the number of users that were logged into a system at a particular point in time and you don't have that data point yet, add it, and then you'll have it in the future if something similar happens again. Um, but expect this to happen. It's impossible to foresee every eventuality. Something will be missed. You will forget to add something. But again, nothing stops you from adding it post-fact. So it's unfortunate the first time it happens, but the second time you'll be prepared for it. Absolutely. That's a really great point. Another, um, I think this is the final one until I, I get into what to monitor my tips on that. And of course yours as well. Um, don't enable every check you can, um, meaning don't use the machine gun approach because I've run into situations constantly. I think every company I've ever worked for has had this happen and you're probably going to laugh, but it's like you have alerts that everyone on the team knows to not take seriously. And, you know, a ginormous number of alerts. And you might have a finicky server, you know, no judgment. I don't know your infrastructure. And I think another uh, consequence or actually a root cause of this mindset is because most of the time we join a company, we start working for a company, they already have servers. They already have the infrastructure. It's like the dream job, in my opinion, to be hired into a company that has no servers at all and you get to be the one to design everything. I feel like that's the greatest dream come true, but that really doesn't happen rarely ever. Um, so when you have a lot of alerts, if you have too many, they, you know your team can get numb and then what if they ignore something that's really important? So um, my question is usually like, okay, if that alert isn't important and we're not, we're just to ignore it, why does it exist? Why don't we just get rid of it? If nobody cares about it, if it doesn't matter, turn it off. Because I have seen situations where there's so many alerts that people on the team, they ignore because they're told to do that. Then they ignore the wrong thing and then servers start falling down. So you definitely don't want to create that situation. On the other side of that coin, um, and this isn't just strictly monitoring, it's more related to the logging side. Um, I personally do feel that you should log as much as possible for as long as you can. And the, the reasoning here is that, say a new vulnerability comes up today, and there is this indicator of compromise that is detectable in the log. Say the connection attempt with a certain string is made to a web server, and that and you're logging that. When that happens, when that new vulnerability comes out, it's very interesting to be able to process that indicator of compromise to your stored logs, to see for how long ago you have logs, see if that ever showed up. Because just because the vulnerability was announced today, doesn't mean that nobody knew about it. Somebody might have known about it beforehand. 
a very, very big eye opener in cybersecurity is when you find out that you've been breached 10 months ago. That's a nightmare to deal with. And that's something that can be discovered by something like this. If you store your logs for long enough and they are meaningful, they have all the data points that you can, you will eventually reach a situation where you run a test on something new and find out that you have already been hit by it. This happens. This isn't just uh, hypothetical. This does happen. And that's a very big eye-opener for cybersecurity. You will never look at your systems again because you'll never trust them 100% again. Um, but at least you'll know that you've been breached and you, start, you need to start handling the fallout of it. So, yeah, not necessarily monitoring related, but logging related, log as much as possible. At least that's my view on it. I completely agree with that. And a couple of things I'll add to that. If you are doing it right and your servers are set up such that, I don't know, you know, have a server that has a problem. And let's say, let's say it's a cloud server and you have a load balancer and you have it set up. If a server runs into a problem, it gets deleted, then another one gets uh, put right back in its place. That's awesome. But one mistake I've seen people make is that um, they'll allow the logs to die with the instance. Okay, so if you have a setup like this, it's really important to have the logs as the machine is being decommissioned to copy its logs somewhere. So that way you could go in and see why did this instance fail? Why did it reach a problem? Could it happen to all the other instances? It, it's sometimes the case if we have auto healing that, oh, it doesn't matter, it'll just come back. You're right, it will. But what if there's a, a problem and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse? And then, you know, you maybe have four instances and one fell over. Okay, it's not the worst thing. And then the one comes back. But then tomorrow you have two instances fail and come back. The day after that, there's three. And then it's like, okay, there's something going on here. Oh, the logs are gone. There's nothing I could do with that. The other point about logging too is that you might not have a choice in how long you keep logs for and not even know it. Know your laws, know your local laws, because there could be in your industry or your area where you live or your businesses, there's all kinds of different factors here. There could be local laws, government laws, um, industry laws. If, if you work in healthcare, you have a different mm -hmm. set of rules as well. Um, but understand retention because, you know, if there's a legal incident and then law enforcement is like, okay, I need three years of logs. What? I don't have that. What do you mean you don't have that? It's the law. You're supposed to have that. Yeah. Well, I didn't know. What you didn't know? Like you didn't bother looking into the laws? Like that conversation is not going to go well. So at least understand your local laws too, because um, if there are no retention laws, make your own because, you, you know, you want to, like I, like you were saying, log everything, but at, at a minimum be compliant with the laws. And then from there, you can log more if you want. Absolutely. Um, and that's a very good point there. Um, so yeah, let's look at some of the things that uh, are actually interesting to monitor. Um, the first one is obvious, CPU usage. You want to be able to spot the, the spikes, you want to be able to spot the, um, the processes that are using too much CPU and hogging the whole system. Um, different monitoring tools will have different names for this. Um, CPU usage isn't just a single data point. It might be queue depth, it might be waiting processes, it might be a whole different list of things. Um, tick them all. <laughs> it's, it's probably what I, what I would do in this situation. And then related to this, it's also the average CPU usage. Why is this important? Because 
you won't see just the, the spikiness of a process going off. You might be able to spot servers that have unusually high uh, CPU, um, servers that have unusually high CPU usage for long periods of time. Something fishy might be happening there. Not all of them, not all systems have to have 60% CPU usage all the time. Um, some do, say ingesting data or database servers or email servers or something like that. Those have some justification for high CPU usage. Others do not. Um, this will let you identify patterns here. It's also very handy to, to keep this. Yep, completely agree. And then obviously swap. If swap is starting to be used, you, you definitely want to know about that because that you're hoping to never have that happen. Um, obviously, that's not going to really help you on Kubernetes if you're monitoring a Kubernetes host in nodes because, you know, as part of the process, you disable swap because it's required for you to do that. So some of these um, checks may not be applicable to everyone. Um, another one, in addition to that, is hard drive space, which, you know, is a given. You, you want to know if your storage is full, but every storage volume. Don't just look at the root volume. If you have a data volume, volume you want to check for that too. Uh, you know, that's a very important one. But check your inodes. I, th I feel like every single Linux administrator runs into this at some point in their career where they look into a system, it's reporting that the disk is full, but they do the df-h command and it's not full. It could be 20% full, 70%, but certainly not 100%. But then if you do df-i to check the inodes, because there's a finite number of inodes, I'm not going to get into the science behind that. You can look that up. Just check for it. Because if the inodes fill or the disk space itself gets full, whichever one happens first will prevent you from saving files. So check for inodes. Hopefully, you know, like all these checks, you're doing it for nothing and you never have a problem. I think we both know you're going to have a problem eventually. So that's uh, another one to add to the list. Yeah, and the inodes is particularly insidious. You will run into it sooner or later, especially now as, um, as volumes start to get in the multi-terabyte range and even bigger than that, because by default, when you format the partitions, they will give you the same default number of inodes, whether they're small or large. Um, and it's tricky to change that after the fact. After it, you already have data in it. You'll have to do some juggling around and probably reformat the, the partition to, to fix that. Um, this is something that will bite you if you're not paying attention to it. So don't just look at the free space, look also at the inodes count. Um, we didn't mention memory, but you obviously want to keep an eye on the, the usage of memory. You memory is actually kind of fun because you're already you've already paid for the memory, you're already paying for the electricity to run the memory. So don't be worried if your memory usage is 80 or 90% all the time. It's why it's there, it's supposed to be used, it's not just sitting idle there. Um, and Linux actually does a pretty good job of just caching everything it can, every single read into memory if it's not being used for something else. So yeah, having more memory helps um, because of that. But keep an eye on memory usage, keep an eye on average memory usage, because as for CPU average, it's good to be able to spot the trends here. So if a system that usually run with, say, 10% of memory usage and now spike to 80% all the time, you might want to look at the, the misbehaving application there because something is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, and this might be something a lot of people don't realize, monitor for 0% CPU 
and zero percent RAM. Now, obviously, if you have a server that is uh, one of those that runs a report for you and only has usage when a report kicks off, that's a server that you know it might actually have zero percent average or, or close to zero percent average CPU in memory. But most servers exist to do work. To your point, you know, you paid for the memory or you're paying for the cloud hosting bill or whatever it is you're paying for. You bought the hardware, you didn't buy it just to look pretty on a shelf and just glisten with these, you know, blinky lights that look really cool in the dark. Um, it actually exists for a purpose. You bought it for a reason to do some work. So if a server is doing no work, then probably something crashed, a process dropped. Um, that, that could be a very, um, you know, big problem. And then also, you know, as an aside, it's funny when you mention CPU usage, I, I keep thinking about this situation where this um, client had, the server would probably average 50% usage and spike to 70% or something like that. And, um, you know, there's just to kind of shorten the story, there's no malware here at all. So it's not, it's not like that. So the person calls in, he's like, uh, yeah, the CPU is always at 50%. And I'm like, awesome. You're getting money out of your server. That's great. And long pause, but it, it never goes down. Great. So it's always working for you. That's awesome. And, and that's just not something that a lot of people understand because they feel like, you know, used CPU is bad. And I'm not really sure where that mindset came from. Now, obviously, if you create a baseline and it's never matching the baseline, not even close in either direction, um, it can be the case that malware will fly under the radar. For example, a malware process might run at like 49% CPU usage and keep itself below that because it might assume there's a good chance there's a monitoring solution that will report on it and it doesn't want to be reported on. So, you know, it's like infect a bunch of machines, but just stay under the radar at the same time. So um, keep in mind that can happen, but in, in my scenario, you know, it's just the mindset of uh, people thinking that CPU usage is bad and memory you know, often it's said that uh, wasted memory is, or or unused memory is wasted memory. Yeah. And that, that's very true as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, all of the monitoring tools have ways to specify the alert uh, percentages that you want to use. So always make sure to set up the high value and the low value. It's very easy when you start doing system administration to just look for the outliers, the very high spiky usage, the very high memory usage and network usage and all of that keep an eye on both ends of the spectrum. Say, for example, one thing that you also want to, to measure is network usage. Um, it's very important to measure both, to be alerted both for the very high usage and the very low usage. If you have a web server that's constantly running at, say, 10 megabit per second or something like that, and all of a sudden drops to 100K or 10K per second or something like that, you have a network issue, you have a connectivity issue somewhere that you yep. need to be alerted to and you need to take action. So it's very important to get the alerts if it gets really low and as well as very high. Um, so don't just focus on one of them. Another one to monitor is the expiration of a certificate for your TLS layer uh -huh. because yes. uh, you don't want to be woken up in the, you know, in the morning earlier than normal with someone complaining that nobody can get to the website because it says that it can't be trusted and nobody got the memo because, you know, I get it. There's a lot of spam and a lot of these um, companies you buy certificates from, maybe they're, you know, sending, trying to upsell you all the time. Uh, again, here we are with the getting numb to alerts kind of thing. But you do need a check to make sure the SSL cert is, um, is, is good. And I would say you could probably start it at a month 
or maybe even a little bit more than that. Um, with Let's Encrypt, it'll be a little different because the certificates don't last as long with that anyway, depending on where you get your cert from. But have, have a check as a warning that's kind of like giving you a lot of time to react and then have it go to critical when it's like two weeks until. Because at that point, I mean, you really do need to get something done because something bad's going to happen if you don't get that going. Um, so TLS certificates, that's a very important one as well because yeah. you just don't want to not have that renewed. And actually, the certificate is very the certificate one is actually very important right now because the maximum time that you can get the certificate for right now it's a year. Um, it's been reducing every every so often. And you need to do this every single year, so you need to be alerted for this situation. If you're managing, right. say, hundreds of websites or something like that, and all of them have different expiration dates, it's a mess trying to keep them all in line. So you either have something that automatically renews the certificates, and that's a very handy tip right there, or if you're doing it manually, some way of being alerted to the next ones that are expiring so that you can take action, um, that will save you some time and that will really help you do your job properly. Absolutely. So that's a, another good one there as well. A, another one, there's multiple ways of doing this. Monitoring your website is up. I mean, yeah, you can monitor processes. That's another one to monitor. You know, is Apache running? Is Nginx running? Whatever mm -hmm. it is. Um, but running isn't really good enough. Running is good, yeah, but is the website available? I, I mean, there's probably not very a super high number of situations that would cause Apache to be running and then, you know, not serving web page, but things happen, right? So what you what some people might do is look for a string on a on the website. Maybe um, there's a copyright message on the bottom of your website. So the presence of that might mean it's working. Or maybe um, your important website has a login form and there's like um, some fields there that need to be present. You could check for those things because if, if the website loads, those things are going to be present. But if someone's getting like the white screen, like when there's a PHP problem in some of the content management systems out there and nothing loads, so you get this blank white page. Um, in that situation, Apache will, or whatever it is, you know, it, it'll be reported that the process is running so you might not be alerted to that fact. And going a step further, you could also alert for response times mm -hmm. because um, whatever the baseline is for how quickly your website loads, if it gets, you know, trends in a different direction and it's taking longer, you might want to look into that because it could mean the web server is not keeping up with the traffic. It could mean that there's something else going on that, you know, is really egregious that you want to check into because maybe the CPU is being used for something that it wasn't used for before. Um, it could be a crypto miner going on. I mean, you never know. You just want to know that, um, you know, there that you you monitor for this. And of course, ISP issues and and things like that are outside of your control. And often that'll just be why. But it's good to be aware of it, even if it's not something you can control. Because um, I like proactive monitoring. Meaning, if a client calls me, I I want to be able to say, yeah, I already know. I know about it. I got the alert a few minutes ago. I'm already working on it. So just give me another few minutes and it'll be fixed. I mean, no, I don't feel like anything will make a client or a customer or a user feel better than that. You're already on top of it. So um, those are some additional things to look at there. Yeah. Um, another way to run that test is to include that string that you mentioned in one of the headers so that it doesn't show up on the, the actual page text or in the source oh, yeah. directly. Include it as a header. And then script it with, say, something like curl that lets you just pull the headers and look for the presence of one of them and then use the result of that curl call to, to monitor that. Um, yep. It's important to, to run that monitor in a way that reflects the user experience. So you might want to have a system outside of your infrastructure looking in 
and trying as a user to load the website. And that way you can measure both the response time and you can measure the actual availability of the website to the outside, because it might be different for you in the internal network than from the external one. You'll be able to pinpoint stuff like global connectivity issues that your organization might be having that you won't find if you're just looking at the internal server. Um, yeah. What you mentioned before about response times is also very interesting. You should monitor both the network latency that you're experiencing between your servers, but also the actual service response time. Um, because you might have no network usage at all, the latency might be low as possible, but you're still loading very slowly. So you might spot something like the database responding slowly or the web server itself having issues or something like that. Um, so those are two important data points to monitor, both network latency and the actual service one. Um, the service one is a bit tricky to monitor properly because it changes from service to service. Not all of them have the same way of measuring availability. So you'll have to find a way that works for you. Say, make a, a dummy call to the database, like just show tables or something like that on the database that you're using and measure the time that it takes for the, re the, the response to happen. Um, that's one way to do it. Um, on your website itself, you might have, say, a, a ping page, something that just gives you back, okay, this took X amount of milliseconds to process, for example, and you report that value back to your monitoring solution. Um, yep. All of those are pretty useful to have. Another one I like, and I don't want to overinflate the value here because there's obviously ways for threat actors to work around this, but it's, it's just set, such an easy... Uh, check to implement that I figure why not and and I feel like this is going to work better for me and smaller teams but this check might be a bad idea for a bigger team I'm just going to put that out there but checking for how many users that are logged on to the server now you should check that anyway even on a big team but what I do is I set it to one I get an alert when one user logs into a system again this is not going to work for everyone because it depends on your environment but if I get an alert that a user logged into a server well, I'm the only one that works here. So if I didn't do it, then clearly someone else did. And that's a problem because if I don't know about it and I'm, I'm the only one that can know about it, there's an issue with a smaller team that might help. But then again, if it's um, you start to get into the territory of, um, well, it's alerting all the time and you're creating that numbness I was telling you about earlier because your employees and your team members are constantly logging in and doing things. It's probably not a good idea for that. But in some environments, you can you can sometimes implement things like that. It's not going to report on a system user. So if uh, you know you left a system account open and someone logged in as that, it probably wouldn't report on it. So don't, you know, just take it with a grain of salt. But in some environments, that, that could be something to consider. And make sure to ignore the, the monitoring account itself, because if one of these monitoring solutions uses a login process to actually read the, the values from the server, you don't want to count that user. So right. make sure there is yeah. some way to ignore some accounts and make that one of those. Um, saying that from experience, because that will trigger a lot of alerts if you do it just for one and then it triggers itself. So, yeah. Yeah, especially if, uh, even more common if you are monitoring system uses an agent right? Because it's going to yeah. log in and get in there. Um, when it comes to the CPU, I feel like sometimes that could be a little tricky. I'll give you an example of this that I ran into a lot. Um, when you look at a system monitor, and I'm not even talking about Nagios at this point, if you just bring up top or you just bring up HTOP on the terminal and just let it sit while the system's running, and let's just say you have like four cores, or actually let's just say you have one, okay? And it's a, not that big of a server. 
you'll see that as processes launch, the CPU will hit 100% but quickly come down. It's like, it's gotta be less than a second or a quarter of a second, but you'll see like a quick spike to 100%. Every time a process loads, quick spike, quick spike. Even HTOP itself, and you'll notice this when you type HTOP on the command line, you'll see the CPU is already at 100%. It's because you launched HTOP. Um, seriously, I'm not even making this up. So um, when you have a CPU check that's checking for 100% usage, um, what a lot of people will do is it has to be so it has to show 100% usage more than once because if you check once, then you could just hit it at just the right time and you check it and it's like 15% used. What it just said it's 100%, but then you'll get a recovery email the the issue is solved. Then error, you know CPU 100% recovery error recovery and your email is just going to get flooded. And I've even seen this with. Um, in some use cases where you have a check that checks maybe four times and it has to be 100% each of the four times, it is absolutely possible that each of those four times it's going to hit the server right when something else causes the CPU to spike. So for that reason, personally, I'm more of a fan of like the average. Um, it's, it's just one of those things you just have to check for, but the average usually works just fine, um, you know, the combination of all the things is usually helpful, but it's just one of those things I can't give you myself because your app, your environment, your baseline, I'm not going to know what that is and how many times you have to check the CPU to avoid a false positive. But just keep in mind that things like this can happen. And if you see this, which I'm sure you will see this, you'll just have to tune it until um, it's more reliable in your environment. Absolutely. Okay, some more interesting points that you might want to measure. Um, rejected connection attempts, both at the system level and at the service level. Um, at the system level, this will probably point to someone trying to get into the system and failing. It can be just because the account is locked or it needs to change a password or something like that, or it can point to an account being hammered and someone is trying to just brute force their way in. Um, right. Either way, you might want to get alerted to that. And also at the service level, say you have a website that has a login prompt and you're getting too many rejected connection attempts on it. You want to take action on that. You might want to look at the, the IP addresses where it's coming from or use some solution like, say, CrowdSource or something like that. Um, yeah, a CrowdSec, sorry. Um, yeah, those are interesting metrics. Also, failed connection attempts. Um, the failed connection attempt is different than the, the rejected connection attempt. The failed connection attempt might show something like the, the service not working properly. Someone tries to log in to open a page and it fails for some reason. You might want to look at the actual service. There might be some issue with it. There might be some availability issue or something like that. It will point you in a different direction than the other one. It might not be something security related. It might just be something that's failing because it's failing, a bug or something like that. Um, you might also want to keep that monitored. One last thing I'll mention about what to monitor, because I feel like um, there's always going to be something that I didn't mention. And I'm sure people that are more familiar are probably already like just, just red hot mad. Jay didn't mention, I know, I know. I'm not going to mention everything here. But another thing to look into, and I'm not sure if they're, what the alternatives are, but Selenium is a solution that you could use to... Um, pretty much automate crawling your own website. So for example, you could create a script that'll open up a web browser, log in, go to your shopping page, look up a product, add the product to the cart, okay? Something users will generally do if, if you're into uh, your company sells things, right? Um, you can automate that in a script 
And then if there's an issue where users aren't able to buy something, if you do sell something, then you'll get an alert because if the, um, you know, the automation that you've created is unable to do this, chances are users are not able to do this either. So it's something to look into, but I also feel like that's a completely different uh, topic altogether. So I just wanted to throw that out there for anyone that wants to do that research and look into it because uh, sometimes your website loading isn't good enough. You know, um, if there's a, for example, your Active Directory connection breaks, um, getting a login prompt isn't good enough. Are you able to actually log in? That's an important thing to know. And if the Active Directory connection dropped and if the cache expired, well, no, you can't. So you'll get a false positive that your website works because the login prompt is there, but you want to make sure people can log in. If you're selling things, again, that they can add something to the cart. Um, it's kind of not easy to automate buying things because then, you know, the shipping department is going to get a lot of alerts about um, phony product orders. You, you can only go so far, but um, that would be the final one on my list. But I do understand there's a bunch of others in uh, free bonus. Make sure NTP is working so your clock is synced. You'll thank me later because once that clock gets out of sync, a lot of weird things will start happening. And DNS. It's always DNS, but especially in monitoring. If DNS isn't responding properly, you'll get weird alerts everywhere, and it's just DNS's fault. Um, yep. There are a couple of others that I want to mention. You should also monitor the number of available updates, for example, and also the number of updates that are applied. Why is this important? For two reasons. First, if you're using something like maintenance windows, you want to ensure that the updates are only applied during that period. If something is applying updates outside of the maintenance windows, that's a problem. It might cause you availability problems, stuff might go down when you don't expect it or don't want it to. So you want to make sure that you're monitoring this for the right period of time for this to happen. Um, you also want to be alerted when there are updates available. If you're not using maintenance windows and you're using something like live patching, for example, um, you don't ever want to see updates available because it should be automated and the patches should just be deploying. So it's also another interesting point and another interesting aspect to keep in mind for stuff to monitor. Um, yeah. If you're not doing it automatically, then you should be monitoring the number of updates because it will let you know which systems need to some action on your part to deploy those updates. You should always deploy the updates. We keep hammering that. It's the best way to, to be protected from many vulnerabilities. Um, so if you see systems that are reporting a high number or any number different than zero on the available updates, you should look into it and you should apply those updates. Um, so that's another yes. important data point that I would like to mention. Careful. If too many people update, then we won't have as much to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, a, free, a free bonus for everyone. Uh, just this isn't necessarily related. It is and it's not. Um, look into healthchecks.io. It's a really cool service because um, you can basically, if you have a script that runs, you can add a, uh, basically give you a string or a command to run that'll uh, ping the service and you set up a check. So the whole idea around healthchecks.io is if your script is running, it's going to report that it ran and you can give it a timeout. If this script or whatever it is doesn't run in two weeks, let me know because it's supposed to run every other week. And if it doesn't, I want to know about it. So that way you don't have any scripts that have a um, silent death either because that wouldn't be a good thing. Um, and there's probably other things. I mean, they're not a sponsor or anything like that. I just use it personally, healthchecks.io. May not fit everyone, but if you have a cron job or something that runs, it might just be a good idea to add that in there. It's not going to be the most valuable check you'll ever implement, but it's super easy to implement and might actually just uh, save you at some point. 
two other things that I'd like to mention. These are probably the last ones for me. Um, the first is unexpected file system changes. I remember you talking about this a few episodes back. This is one thing that you want to keep an eye out. If your system is not supposed to have stuff being changed and you find out that some files are changing, you need to look into why that happens. So monitoring the number of files changed is an important thing to do. This is probably best automated to a tool like Tripwire, for example, that gives you a report on the system. It runs, it checks all the files, it compares it to the previous run, it lets you know, okay, this amount of files um, were changed. Um, it's easy to script something in Bash or something that just takes that string and reports it back to the monitoring tool. Um, you want to make sure that that is zero, or if it's not zero, then you want to look into it and see why. At the very least, monitor the, the Etsy directory for changes in configuration. Um, a tool like, say, Etsy Keeper that um, that you can also script around and that can also tell you the differences between the last time it ran. It's also interesting to, to keep an eye out and to keep monitored. Um, at the very least, it will let you know when those changes happen so that you can take action if action is necessary or just mute the alarm because it was something that you actually wanted to happen. So, yeah, I wanted to touch on the... Um gray log thing too, because I feel like we're coming up on time. So we don't really have a, I don't think enough time to super cover it, but um, gray log, it, it solves that whole central logging thing, which I feel like everyone needs, but I do want to throw a point out there because it's less about gray log. It, you should have something harvesting your logs. I don't care if it's CloudWatch and AWS or gray log, whatever the solution is, there's countless ones out there. Um, you definitely need to have that. Um, so I feel like we, we did kind of say that already, but I wanted to make sure I was clear on that. But another tip, and I really like this one a lot, if you are using a cloud provider, um, and you could probably do the same thing on physical as well, um, do not have your log collection on the same account as production. You could literally open another account with AWS or whatever your provider might be. You could literally open an account that's only for logging does nothing else. So that way, if unfortunately someone breaks into your production cloud account, which is like, I feel like someone should make a horror movie about this and like oh, every IT person that sees this will have nightmares for like years. Um, Cause you never want someone in your cloud account. That's like the worst thing that could happen. But if they can get in there, they can get your logs. They have access, right? Because they're in the same account. So I've heard of companies, and I think this is a great idea, creating a secondary AWS account that only exists for logs to be dumped to with different credentials, different everything. Um, so that way, if unfortunately that day comes, you still have your logs and you're going to um, be glad you did or you do if that happens. Hopefully it never does, but um, I feel like I say that a lot. Hopefully you never run into a problem, but when you do, because I know you will, uh, it's kind of self-defeating, but having something in another account is a great idea because you're segregating things. And that's one of the things you could do with cloud that you could do that with, with physical by just having your log collection server on a different VLAN with very strict firewall rules. But, um, you know, just make sure that if someone does get into your production servers, they can't uh, go back and then delete the logs. Because believe me, they want to absolutely delete the logs if they break in. Yeah. Um, and having something like Raylog lets you centralize the logs from everything. So it's easier if you want to then run an indicator of compromise, like I mentioned at the start. Um, it's a good idea and a good way to, to keep your logs for longer. Um, again, and I cannot stress this enough, log everything for as long as possible. It's not monitor everything, but store the logs so that you can actually look at them at some point in the future for some reason that you're not foreseeing right now. Totally agree. 
at, at the ver the the worst that can happen is you're wasting disk space, and that's it. Well, it's also a good way to know uh, how inodes work because I feel like when you're logging everything, you're going to find out real quick uh, how inodes work. Because again, you're going to run into it. It's one the one thing we cannot save you from. You will absolutely hit that problem. So maybe we should do an inodes episode. We're not, but we'll probably mention it again. I'm sure. Yeah, and I guess we gave you enough ideas for the the data points that you need to monitor. Um, each of these tools that we mentioned at the start, they will have a preset number of things that they can monitor. They will give you ideas about stuff that you might not think of monitoring, but they will include it anyway. Um, take a look at those. If those are not enough for your specific situation, make sure that you add the ones that you're interested in. And again, don't feel too bad if something that you actually need to look at isn't being logged immediately. Just add it as soon as you notice that it's not there. Nothing prevents you from changing the configuration further down the line. And also, as you're reading all these security stories about you know poor people and companies that um, were on the other end of a, of a hack, unfortunately, Frame it like, in your mind, could there have been a check that might have alerted them to this problem? And always remember that every time you're reading an article, because at that point, it's not just your own learning experience. You have to also understand what went wrong, what could someone else have done that was on an, in an unfortunate situation. And sometimes it might just be, well, if they had an alert about this, they would have at least found out sooner or maybe even never had a problem at all. So that's the final tip on my side, and I believe that's yeah. our podcast. Um, next week, the week of the 31st, I will be at All Things Open, so there will not be a podcast uh, that week, the next week, as of the time we're recording this, so the week of October 31st. But uh, we'll see you after that. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Until the next one. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>